This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's World Mental Health Day. And according to StatsCan, approximately 2.8 million people or 10% of Canadians uh, reported symptoms uh, consistent with mental or substance use disorders in the past 12 months. Cam H says the number is one in five. That's double. So, 70% of mental health problems have their onset during childhood or adolescence. Young people aged 15 to 24 are more likely to experience mental illness. Men have higher rates of addiction than women, while women have higher rates of mood and anxiety disorder. We know that mental and physical health are linked. People with long-term medical conditions like chronic pain are more likely to experience mood disorders. The converse of that is often true. At least 20% of people with a mental illness have a co-occurring substance use problem. And for people with schizophrenia, the number may be as high as 50%. And also, Coping with mental illness can be devastating for the entire family, not just the person affected. And that goes without saying. I'd like to hear from you and your experiences with this, because obviously it's a very common thing. It's got a stigma, though I think uh, my perception is that that stigma is really uh, starting to lift. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-4740. And joining me now, Anya Jones with the Schizophrenia Society of Ontario and Dr. Oren Amate, a registered psychologist based here in Toronto. Welcome and thanks to you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. Amate, um, what expression of mental illness do uh, most of your patients experience? Would it be depression, anxiety, or something else? Depression and anxiety are the two most common, and they've uh, recently kind of been heightened uh, with things that are going on in the world today. And especially among young people, I'm finding that uh, adolescents or people in the early 20s, late 20s, they don't seem to have the kind of coping skills and the resilience that we've seen in previous generations. And that's the most worrying for me. Really? Okay. A lot of people do say that. Um, why is that? There's a few things. I think, um, and I don't want to get too political here, but I do believe that at the academic levels, whether it's university or even you know high school and primary grades, that they are being kind of fed a narrative of victimization. That that is the last thing that we want people to do. Or being they're being told that there are so many dangerous, scary things out there, and that we have to protect you from them, and that you are a victim just by breathing in the same space as somebody else that you know might, that you might find offensive. And so they they don't get that sense of what we call self-efficacy, the idea that I can have an impact on my environment if I'm feeling 
scared, if I'm feeling apprehensive, if I'm feeling that things aren't going the way I want, that I can do something about that. That's self-efficacy. And I'm not seeing enough of that or self-agency being promoted. I'm seeing more along the lines that say that, you know, people are being treated as victims. They're being treated as part of a marginalized group. It's really identitarian politics. And that does, I see the very effects happening, you know, daily, whether as an instructor at a university or in my clinical practice, or when I see my children who range from age uh, 10 to 22, when I see their friends and I hear the way they talk, this is the kind of narrative that's being promoted. It's unhealthy because our genetics have not changed over the last number of years, right? Um, the circumstances, in fact, this is the best time to be living as far as, you know, convenience and so yeah. on, right? Health and everything. We have so many opportunities. So something else is going on that's leading to this change in perception of oneself and one's role in the universe. And um, I think this is a large part of it. Anya Jones, obviously, uh, schizophrenia is uh, something very different entirely. It's a imbalance in, in the brain. Uh, how many people are affected by it? And, and just tell us a little bit more about the illness. Yeah. So schizophrenia is, um, a disease where, um, one in 100 people are affected globally. So, um, in Canada, that means over just over 360,000 Canadians, um, of that 140,000 in Ontario. Um, psychosis is often a first sign of schizophrenia and that, um, affects about 1 million Canadians. So it's, um, it's a lot more than people might think a lot more common. And how does it express itself? So, um, I, I guess the easiest way to talk about symptoms and, um, you know, just the, the fact that symptoms happen, they're different for everyone and in different degree, um, in terms of experience for everyone. And, um, they, tend to range from experiencing a break in reality, um, delusions, hallucinations, um, hearing voices, um, sometimes just feeling paranoid, uh, feeling withdrawn. Your speech may be affected as well. Um, just connecting with others may be affected. Uh, one of the other uh, things about this, there, there's treatment for it, but it can be very difficult to get people to take their medication. And it, it's heartbreaking for the family because there isn't a lot they can do about it. Um, so I'm going to let the doctor answer that. But what I will say in terms of um, schizophrenia is that one of the most common things is that it's so misunderstood. Um, so Probably about 60, 60% of people do recover with treatment. We've had a lot of advancements in treatment um, over the years. And I would say three in 10 recover well enough to uh, work, um, be excellent parents, pursue interests um, such as, you know, gardening, writing, um, photography. We have many people on our speakers bureau living with the illness who are strong advocates who can um, hold down a job, live independently, pursue interests. So, um, so, you know, there are those that are hard to treat for sure. It is, uh, it is a large segment as well. It's three in 10, 30% who um, may need a lot more support, but then there's uh, the other group that live quite well with the illness. Right. And when you said heartbreaking, that's literally the word that I always use when I talk about trying to find help for somebody who starts to deteriorate because there's nothing the family can do aside from trying to get them help. And one of the cliches is that if you have a severe mental illness, you do not know that you have it. So especially with paranoia being one of the top two 
you know, feelings of persecution, uh, symptoms for someone who's going to have a psychotic or schizophrenia, you know, psychotic break or kind of de- de- deteriorate into schizophrenia, coming to a doctor, coming to a hospital, that's the worst place because they feel they're being taken to the enemy. They feel that they're going to try to, you know, kidnap them, contain them, not let them go. So it's terrifying for them. And it's very difficult to convince the person that, these medications, which are unpleasant, that have terrible side effects, that will keep you up at night, you know, horrible weight gain, destroy your libido, blurry vision, and so on, that this is the best thing for you. And the sad thing is once they take it, because we don't have enough follow-up care in Ontario or anywhere else in Canada, that, you know, they're feeling better. They're saying, the only thing that's not going well right now is this darn medication. But why am I taking it if I feel so good? They stop taking it, well, and that's exactly. the revolving door uh, on phenomenon, unfortunately. Or even to get them to take it in, in the, the first, first place. place. I mean, uh, the laws were changed in Ontario uh, to prevent certain kinds of abuse, and now there's, you know, the, the family can't do anything that the person doesn't agree to. Right. And I always say to them, I say this to the families, I say this to my students, I say, sadly, you have to wait until they deteriorate to the point that either they cannot take care of themselves or, unfortunately, they become a risk to somebody else. And then I say, you hope you're going to be taken to a hospital because the alternative is jail or prison, um, you know, because they get arrested and they don't always get taken to hospital. So it's terrifying for the person going through it. And your whole world is turned upside down. Reality is not real anymore. So, uh, you know, I think the most important thing, you said that we're having a better perspective on, you know, mental illness. You know, on one hand, I do believe we're learning more and I believe there's less stigma than before. On the other hand, within any individual home, that's where people really feel the stigma. If, whether it's directed toward them, whether they have a substance abuse issue or some other mental illness, or whether they just hear their family talking in a derogatory manner about, you know, those crazy people on the street or those drug addicts, right? That's where they feel that they can't come forward because that's the stigma that they are most likely to see. Forget the, you know, athletes or celebrities coming on and saying it's okay and let's, you know, wear a shirt a certain day. In home, there's still a lot of stigma. I see that a lot in, in, the theme for this year actually is suicide prevention. And, and yet 10%, you were saying, of people with schizophrenia take their own lives? Mm-hmm. That is the statistic that we often see. And, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the time, um, it can happen uh, more um, easily with young people, you know, pressures of being um, successful in school, moving away to school from home and unfamiliar environment can increase those chances. Um, so that, that is the rate that um, that we do see with uh, schizophrenia and psychosis. It's just a lot more pressure living with that uh, that illness. And Dr. Amate, the the people who are uh, where the suicide rate is highest are older white males, though. Yes, uh, because you know, it goes back to the pressure. For example, because in that role. You're not taking care of just yourself, but you have your family, you have your elderly parents, and you feel financial pressure. And and talking about, uh, we're saying about pressures, uh, if you're in your 40s or 50s and you're trying to look toward your golden years and you're saying, wait, I don't foresee any golden years. I see more work, work, and work. Uh, you know, I always de- I'm in a deep hole and I'm trying to get out of it. And if you don't feel that um, either A, you have the ability to do it, or B, you have the support when you're trying to do that and see you're trying to be stoic you're trying to you know not show the weakness quote unquote weakness to others that is such pressure and sometimes it just seems like the easier solution for yourself and for your family 
is to unfortunately end it all. And, you know, that's never the, the best solution or it's rarely the best solution, especially for the people who are left, you know, trying to pick up the pieces. Yeah, it's, um, do you see more families or, or people who have come to you, uh, hopefully to be talked out of it? I deal with both. I've been, I, I, I'm very, um, let's say, uh, free will type of person where I say, I'm never going to try to stop you. I, my patients know this. I say that if you feel the urge that you have to do it, I say, give me a last call. Let's just say goodbye if that's, you know, where, where you feel that you really are at. Cause I don't have that right to say, no, don't do it. And I've had people call me in that position. And fortunately, they decide in, in connecting with another human being and realizing that, you know what, there is somebody who's got my back. There is someone who cares about me enough that in the middle of the night, I'm calling them and true to their word, they answered or they called back. And that can help them have a bit of sense of hope. And that's when we talk about suicide. The number one thing we need to two things. One is we have to instill in people a sense of hope. Things might not be great. They might never get great, but they're going to get better, we hope. And number two, a feeling that they have someone who they can reach out to that's not going to judge them, that there is some kind of support, whether it's financial support or emotional support or practical guidance. And those are so important. And then in line with that, we have to be able to talk about it. There are so many myths around suicide. And one of those is that if you talk about it, it's going to encourage people. No, having a healthy discussion about it, a non-judgmental discussion really helps people kind of get a sense of perspective. Anya, you're nodding. Absolutely. Um, I think part of, um, you know, people being facing barriers and getting help is just um, the reluctance to talk about what they're facing and specifically with a serious mental illness, um, such as schizophrenia, psychosis, where what you're experiencing can be confusing to you. Um, there may be a lot of shame, reluctance to uh, to sort of admit what you're facing. Um, and that sort of prevents you from going to seek the help that you need. Um, and as we all know, early intervention, early support with uh, serious mental illness is uh, crucial to recovery. Um, and just increases the chances of, of people recovering and living good, healthy lives. Okay, let's take a call from Debbie in St. Agatha. Hello, Debbie. Hi. Um, my comment uh, is about um, um, the um, unequal treatment in the courts for mentally ill people. I have a sister who is brain damaged as a result of domestic violence. She was strangled, and uh, so sorry to hear that. Thank goodness she survived, but um, and it's been a, it was a nightmare. We haven't even been able to get her diagnosed because every time she's been taken into the hospital to the psych ward, um, they keep her for the seventy-two hours, and they just put down a, a different diagnosis. So she's had like five different things that they've said she has, but they've never um, and at, on the family we've tried. Each six times when she was taken in, we tried to get um, a brain scan done, and they refused to do it unless they had her permission, which she was chemically restrained, so she was totally unconscious, so how could she give permission? But anyways, uh, then when it goes to court, because they were a common-law marriage of 14 years with three children, um, she tried to... They have a mental health court, for people who have mental mental illness, if they're the perpetrator, if they have gotten in trouble with the law, um, uh, and then they so there's allowances made when they have to go and represent themselves in court. But if you have to go to court 
and you're not the perpetrator. You're trying to get your rights, which is what she was trying to do, was to get um, property rights, which are, are everybody says, oh, it's equal for married or um, no, it's not. Law. It's it absolutely not. not. People, it's a big misconception uh, right. that it is, uh, and uh, you are absolutely right. If you are common law, you have the right to support. You do not have the right to property, and right. a lot of people do not understand that. Uh, Debbie, uh, thank you very much for sharing your story. I mean, it, it's a horrible situation. Right. Thanks for your call. And, and they made a joke out of her, like. When it went, when she was in court, you know, it was child's play for the law, the other side lawyer. And she absolutely did not get her equal rights. And they have, why do they not have a court system that allows, she was already victimized and she still wasn't um, allowed to, I couldn't even bring up the fact that she had, had been brain damaged. They said, you're not allowed to talk about any of that, the, the, what happened to her or anything. So. Okay. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story, Debbie. Uh, well, that's a whole other subject that that uh, really, when you enter into a common law relationship, you should really uh, understand what the le- what your legal rights are. I-, I saw you nodding your head throughout that. Well, a few things. One, I mean, we could have a whole discussion about uh, family court, which I won't go into. But you know, she's talking about diversion program, which is actually good for people. Uh, in, in her case, it kind of went against her sister. But if somebody does have a mental health issue, many times the courts will recognize that they will show compassion and they will prevent them from you know getting a record. They try to make sure that they get proper treatment and so on. So that's one of the changes that has happened over the years, where we are at least systemically, sort of recognizing that sometimes we have to make allowances for people's bad judgment or bad behaviors. Uh, we've, we've also uh, had a, a, a public backlash over a bunch of instances here down the street here at CAMH right. where, where uh, people who, who are in there for being not criminally responsible have just walked out and uh, uh, that, that's a problem. It truly is. And that's a problem of, uh, of oversight. And, um, you know, and I hope there's going to be some accountability because we, we want to be able to distinguish, you know, between mental illness and criminal activities. And sometimes the two are correlated, but many times they are not. And for example, you, um, Anya's talking about psychosis. Well, people mix that up with psychopaths and, you know, psychopaths don't deserve sympathy and compassion. Uh, we have to be careful about them, but somebody who commits a, a, a terrible act while in the middle of a psychosis when they're not in their right state of mind, we have to recognize that and they deserve compassion. If they've done nothing else wrong in life, then we have to understand that with proper treatment through medication, with proper follow-up, they can go back to living, we hope, a productive life and contribute to society. Anya, what are you hoping for at the the Schizophrenia Society? What what do you hope will improve, say, uh, from now until the next mental health day. So I think um, one of the biggest things would be just more education and understanding about what the illness actually is and isn't, because what what it is is that it is treatable, um, that people do live well with it. And what it isn't is that, you know, the few and far between uh, the cases that we hear in the media where there's a violent act being committed, you know, violence and mental illness is obviously a very loaded topic. Um, but the general statistics do show that people with mental illness generally are not violent and if they are, then they are, um, you know, either against themselves, uh, such as, you know, suicide that we already talked about, um, and uh, not 
against strangers or in public. So that that's one thing. Um, and definitely one thing that I would like to see is um, access to community supports for everyone. Um, we, we know that people recover best in the communities that they live in with the supports of wraparound care um, in their community. As um, Dr. Omite mentioned, um, you know, it is, it can be traumatizing to, uh, to be plunged into a hospital situation. Uh, and Dr. Amate, 30 seconds for you. <laughs> okay, well, uh, you know, these kind of um, discussions are essential. People have to be able to talk about them. And as far as we've come over the last number of years, we have so much farther to go. And I'll tell you right now, I've said this every time I have an opportunity, the government has failed. The government has failed to allocate money properly uh, to getting the care for the people that um, can use it. And a bunch more money allocated today. I haven't had a close look at it to see what it adds up to, but yeah. Well, and it doesn't, but it's not usually put in the right places, I found. It has to be to the, the workers on the ground. More treatment, more supports, more follow-up. That's what we need. Okay. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much to Anya Jones and Dr. Oren Amate. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.